Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the podcast from P-Town. Hope everybody's having another good week. Um, hope you guys had a chance to listen to the episode I put out last week with my interview with our mayor, Jason Beebe. That was probably the funnest episode I've done so far. It's a lot of uh, fun and it makes it more interesting and whatnot to have somebody else in here to kind of go back and forth with. So that was... Uh, that was a lot of fun. Hopefully uh, you guys enjoyed it. I know the audio quality wasn't the greatest. I only have a single mic set up right now. And due to the fact that I kind of just do this for fun, um, it's probably going to stay that way for a while. And other than that, let's get into a little bit of news. I've been kind of staying away from the news, actually, uh, the past couple of weeks because it just tends to make me angry. And tonight I was skimming through, and sure enough, it, the hypocrisy hit me again of everything that's going on out there. There's pictures floating out of uh, the Bidens visiting the Carters, and nobody's wearing masks after they say that we all have to wear masks to protect ourselves and stuff, and all those people are really old, so you'd think they'd be the ones that are trying to do it the most. Um, Also saw that Bill and Melinda Gates are getting divorced, uh, following in the tracks of Jeff Bezos, evidently, but... Another case of uh, him taking his secret girlfriend on getaways and his wife evidently found out about it. So probably not going to work out real well for him. And in, in better news, in the NFL draft, the Eagles ended up drafting the Heisman Trophy winner from last year. So hopefully that'll bring a couple more weapons to the team and they can uh, have a better year this year than they did last year. But... The way things have been going for them lately, I kind of doubt it, but I always get my hopes up before every year starts. But anyhow, this week we are going to talk about Juan Domingo Perón, and he was one of the leaders of Argentina. And I talk about it a little bit at the end. I'm really confused on what to think about this guy. I'm not sure if I like this guy or if I dislike him. He's, uh, I don't know, we'll go through it. You can make up your own decisions. But he was born on October 8th, 1895, and he died on July 1st of 1974. He was born in Lobos, Buenos Aires province in Argentina. His father was a guy by the name of Juana Sosa Toledo, and his mother was Maria Tomas Perón. And his parents met while his dad was working on a farm, and they ended up, they actually ended up having their two sons out of wedlock. And, but then they eventually did get married in 1901. And then later that same year, after they got married, his dad ended up getting a sheep ranch in the Patagonia area. But in 1904, uh, Juan, he was sent off to a boarding school in Buenos Aires. They wanted him to get a better education. But this, And the school, it was ran by his paternal grandmother. And uh, in this school and whatnot, he was raised with a strict Catholic upbringing. Then he ended up joining the National Military College at uh, 16, and this was in 1911. And then he graduated there from ni- in 1913, so pretty young start into the military. And it was said that he wasn't real great with his academics, but he was good in uh, athletics, especially boxing and fencing. And then in the military, he rose up pretty quickly, uh, rising up through the ranks, and his first assignment was an infantry post at a place called Piranha Intra Rios. And 
shortly after or while he was there, he went on to command the post. And this is starting out this uh, early in his all of his career, he kind of starts getting into his labor uh, things that he did throughout there that he's kind of known for throughout his career. But he went on to command the post and he mediated a labor dispute with the forestry company and um, or with the the workers in the forestry company in Argentina in 1920. And then after that, he went on to get his instructor's credentials at the Superior War College. And then he was appointed to the Army General Staff Headquarters in 1929. And he also actually ended up getting married in 1929 as well. But he was soon recruited by the supporters of the war director to, they were going to collaborate on a coup against the president at the time. And he ended up, uh, they found out about this, and he ended up being banished to a remote post in northwestern Argentina after the coup attempt failed. And that, um, it, uh, they tried for the coup in September of 1930, and evidently they were uh, found out or whatever, and he ended up getting sent out of the area. But he was still promoted to major the next year, and uh, after that he became a teacher at the Superior War School. And while he was there, he ended up teaching military history. Then after that, he served as a military attache at the Argentine post in Chile. And he served there from 1936 to 1938. And then he went back to the academy again and returned to his job there. And then, unfortunately, though, later that wife, uh, his wife ended up developing uterine cancer. And she died on September 10th at the age of 30. So as pretty uh short life there then in 1939 he was assigned to study mountain warfare in the italian alps and he was also a military observer in countries across europe at the time so he'd go and see some of the different trainings and things like that that uh, the different countries in europe were uh were doing and while he was there he he began to study mussolini's fascist ideology and he was also studying uh, nazism and it kind of it seems like this stuff kind of took hold with him in a way but kind of not i guess and then he ended up returning to argentina in 1941 and he became the army skiing instructor in argentina in the mendoza province then in 1943 he played a significant role in the coup d'etat against uh the president at the time ramon castillo and he was a colonel at this time and they were against the conservative civilian government of castillo these um and i think a lot of this plays back into his uh fascist ideology and his nazism and whatnot but after they uh did this coup he ended up becoming head of the labor department and he helped pass a lot of social reforms to improve working conditions. And he eventually worked uh, with the railway unions in Argentina and uh, a couple of different unions to get the Labor Department moved to the cabinet-level secretariat in 1943. So before, they were just kind of a, a, depart, a government department and whatnot. And he got them moved into actually being kind of part of the president's cabinet. So it gave them a little bit more strength and uh, say-so in what was going on down there. Then in 1944, there was a massive earthquake in Argentina, and it ended up claiming about 10,000 lives, and it leveled entire cities. The, everything was just torn down. And 
uh, with this, Perone became nationally prominent for heading up relief efforts for people all across the country. And he was doing a lot of good things to really help the people that were, you know, orphaned or wounded or people that were left homeless and um, all that. But by now, the country, um, Argentina, they after the coup, they didn't really, I guess, didn't really have a good idea in mind of how they were going to lead after theirs after that so they were end up being led by a junta which is basically a military led government and the current guy in charge he was unseated for suspending diplomatic relations with the axis countries um which i guess that probably would have been a good thing for them but they brought in a guy by the name of general eldamiro ferro or eldamiro ferro and at this time, Perón ended up being named vice president, and he was a secretary of war, along with all the stuff that he was doing with the Labor Party as well. So he had a pretty full plate. But throughout his time with the Labor Department, he greatly improved things for workers, and that's probably part of the reason why they kept him there. Uh, he introduced um, things like accident insurance. He uh, created a standard minimum wage that they could end up paying people. Uh, he created maximum hours that they could cause, uh, that they could have the people to work. So he seemed to be focused on making the people of Argentina happy to live there. He And he even kind of said that in one of his speeches. That, you know, he was really wanting people to have a lot of national pride and be happy to live in Argentina and uh, really try to make a great country out of the place. Then in 1985, or 1945, he ended up marrying Eva Duarte and... I probably, um, a lot of people know this name from the Don't Cry For Me Argentina song or show or whatever that was with Madonna in it. And she helped him gain support in the labor and women's groups. Um, she was, she, I think I touched on a little, in a little bit, she was, came from a lower class than what generally, um, people, uh, in power come from, I guess. And, uh, so she helped him gain a lot of support in some of the lower classes. So with the support and whatnot that they had, he ended up deciding to run for president and he ran under the labor party ticket and he ended up winning the presidency. And with this, he stated his two main goals were social justice and economic independence. And this kind of reminds me a little bit about what we talked about with the communist bloc um, kind of that were, you know, they're trying to gain their economic independence and not rely on any other countries for anything. And it usually doesn't work out so well for him. But it seems that Peron, he was trying to do good things for the country and as well as for the working class. Uh, so that was making him pretty popular. He was trying to close the gap between the classes and create so that there wasn't such a uh, distinct difference between lower, middle and upper classes. And he was trying to help uh, get wage increases through for some of the lower class workers. Because even though he'd established that minimum wage, people still weren't getting paid very well at all. And while he was president, he also centralized the bank. And with doing this, he was able to pay off its billion dollar debt to the Bank of England. So that helped uh, stimulate their economy a little bit. And he was also making good moves for Social Security for the people. So the people that were out of work, he kind of created a Social Security system so that they would be taken care of after they were done working. 
As far as for, as far as his foreign policies go, he tried to stay out of the Cold War stuff that was going on all over in pretty much every country at the time. They were you were either on one side or the other, and but by doing this, the U.S. kind of uh, strong-armed him a little bit and made it kind of hard for him. They're placing embargoes on his country to try to keep them from becoming economically sovereign, and if you remember this time at around this time the u.s was fearing communist power in the western hemisphere remember they'd kind of created that pact with a bunch of countries to squelch any type of communist power that would take place over here but they even uh as far as the strong arming of them goes they even cut argentina out of the exports uh under the marshall plan that plan that we had adopted a few years before that but this and with this it also uh, add to him not being able to gain uh, economical independence. And he was owed money by other countries as well as having a higher need for U.S. goods. But the exports were continuing to to decline. And what I was, with that owing money to other or by other countries, a lot of these countries just flat weren't paying him. You know, they, uh, they owed him a substantial amount of money and they... I guess just decide they weren't going to pay or something. But back at home, he was putting a lot of money into the infrastructure as well. Um, it didn't seem like things were paying off like he had hoped. He was trying, it's kind of like he was trying to bring up a third world country up to a first world. And it was harder than it seemed. Things weren't panning out for him. They, uh, they had a poor electric grid there. And he, uh, he with the electric grid, he had a guy that was trying to work on nuclear fusion and after they sunk a bunch of money into this guy and a lot of this guy's research and stuff it turns out that the guy was a fraud and he never really was doing anything on it but i would figure as a government leader you should probably keep a closer eye on that type of thing but like i said um he was he was really trying to build the country up but things they just weren't going his way and then to make matters worse, his wife, Eva, she ended up dying in 1952. And like I said earlier, she came from common roots. And many of the people that they'd garnered uh, support from in the, labor in the labor class, they kind of felt that they had lost an ally when she ended up dying. Um, so it kind of fell back into more of the segregation between the classes and that type of thing. Um, so that kind of started to sink his uh, popularity a little bit. So the first to start opposing him were the intellectuals in the middle class. Uh, as goes everywhere, I guess, college professors and students were the main ones that were causing the problem. It seems like a lot of them caused problems in a lot of places. And many of them ended up leaving the country over uh, some of the things that they were upset with him, what he was doing. So yeah, was the, what, things weren't going well for him, um, and it, this now is it kind of starts bringing us back around to the fascist stuff that he'd picked up when he traveled to Europe back in 1938. Like I said, he greatly admired Mussolini, and he also admired the Nazi ideology. Not so much the killing people in gas chambers part, but kind of the dictatorial stuff, and. It was said that he'd often use violence and di dictatorial rule to get his point across. And then like all the other, a lot of the other leaders that we'd, we've talked about on here, he would imprison people who spoke out against him in the media 
and any politicians that were going against him, they'd be, end up being imprisoned as well. So basically today people call his rule as being fascist, a fascist rule. And as many people know, Argentina was one of the first to open the, their borders to the Nazi war criminals. And this is where I think that he kind of may have been actually going kind of insane, a little bit uh, cuckoo. He was quoted after the Nuremberg trials as saying in Nuremberg at the t at that time something was taking place that I personally considered a, dis a disgrace and an unfortunate lesson for the future of humanity. I became certain that the Argentine people also considered the Nuremberg process a, a disgrace unworthy of the victors who behaved as if they had hadn't been victorious. Now we realize that they, meaning the allies, deserve to lose the war. And I, evidently he was uh, too far out of it or something because um, if history serves me and pretty much everybody else in the world right, the Allies ended up winning the war, not losing it. And so um, I'm not sure where this stuff was coming to or coming from, I guess. And then it was also found out later that he had met with Axis power people to secure a way to get the Nazi people into Germany, to get the, all those guys that had escaped um, from Germany when the Allies went in there. He had uh, been working with people in power to get them um, safe harbor into Argentina. And it came to light that he had been having a lot of secret going-ons with the Nazis, and not just the Nazis, a lot of the other Axis countries as well, that he was having these secret meetings with them. And on the other side of that coin, he was saying that he was remaining neutral. But then, along with the Nazis, Argentina also ended up letting in a lot of Jewish immigrants after the war. And he even appointed um, Jewish Argentine people to places of power within his government. So he was letting two uh, social groups that did not get along at all, both of them in at the same time. But even with all this going on, he ended up being reelected to a second term with a margin of over 30% over the next uh, guy. And I think he still had a lot of the labor class behind him somewhat, even though some of them had dropped off because of uh, losing Eva. But a lot of them still supported him, kind of like Trump's presidency when the uh, blue-collar workers stand up and speak their voice. They have a pretty big voice. But with this, there's great opposition. Uh, uh, the majority still liked him, but the opponents were out to cause discontent. And kind of like what goes on today. At one time, a terrorist group detonated a bomb in a popular square, and they ended up killing seven people and injuring 90 more. So that was no bueno, Aries. Yeah, see what I did there. But even at this time, Argentina did seem to have the highest standard of living in Latin America, and drawn to this area uh, because of the because they did have such a high standard of living, companies like Fiat, uh, Daimler Benz, and General Motors began opening facilities in the country. And I think part of this also kind kind of came from uh, the Nelson Rockefeller deal, because uh, remember Standard Oil of California was doing exploration there, and he was involved with them in Venezuela, and he was really trying to build up. Um, Latin America, if you remember from that episode. But soon, um, even though, you know, there was good and bad going on, he would end up starting to make more enemies. 
and he legalized divorce and prostitution, which brought him under attack by the Catholic Church. And it didn't help that he had had a relationship going on with an underage girl at the time either. That um, didn't make probably anybody really happy. But soon he ended up getting tired of the scrutiny from the church, and he had the expulsion of two Catholic priests that he thought were behind a lot of this. So the church retaliated with that by having him excommunicated from the church. So there was all that going on for him. So then uh, after that, uh, he the following day, he ended up calling uh, for a rally of support on the Plaza de Mayo. And this was a time-honored custom uh, among the Argentine presidents during a challenge when they were thought that uh, things were starting to go south for him, they'd hold a, a big get-together or speech or whatever and try to get everybody back on their side. But it didn't work out so well for him because as he spoke before a crowd of, a thousand, you know, there are thousands of people, a bunch of Navy fighter jets flew overhead and dropped bombs into the crowded square um, that all these people were at listening to his speech. And then they flew off and they ended up seeking refuge in Uruguay. And obviously this was a coup attempt and it ended up killing 364 people and the only ever air attack over the Argentine soil. But 360 people and I didn't see how many people had actually been wounded in this attack, but it was pretty devastating. Then a few days later they attempted another coup and Perron ended up barely escaping with his life. He uh, snuck, they snuck him out the back door and he kind of exiled for a while. And uh, with this, he ended up leaving his 13-year-old lover behind. So there's that. But this would end up being beginning of a year of an 18-year exile for him. So he stayed out of there for 18 years. Um, he traveled to... Uh, but I think he sought out refuge in Chile, and there were quite a there. Uh, he got started uh, becoming buddies with uh, Che Guevara, who I think was in Peru or Venezuela or somewhere like that at the time, and so he kind of was almost kind of like he was on the run a little bit. But then on June twenty third of nineteen seventy three, he returned from Spain, which was the latest place that he was at. And he had about three, three and a half million followers greet him at the airport to uh, welcome him back into the country. But there were also uh, camouflage snipers hanging out, waiting for him at the airport, too. And they ended up opening fire on the group and uh, ended up killing quite a few of the people. But once he came back to the country, he ended up uh, running for president again. He was actually elected for a third term. But they think he may have been senile by this point, which I... Th think he was probably senile, senile before this point. Uh, he was having a lot more health problems, which would cause his wife, I, and I, don't, I didn't see if it was the 13-year-old girl or um, if it was a different wife, but it would cause her to act as president from time to time because he just wasn't able to fulfill the duties. And then his health continued to decline, and he ended up having a, or suffering from a fatal heart attack on July 1st of 1974. And like I said at the beginning, while I was researching him, I kept trying to decide if I liked this guy or if I didn't like him. And I found another site that kind of helped uh, explain the different aspects of him. And on that site, they said that like every other political leader, Perón had his ups and downs and left a mixed legacy. 
On the plus side, some of his accomplishments were impressive. He increased basic rights for workers. He vastly improved the infrastructure. Uh, mainly, that was in the electrical power stuff that I talked about. And he modernized their economy. And he was a skillful politician. And he was on good terms with both the East and the West during the Cold War. But also, like we had said, he was having secret meetings with uh, the East during that time, too. But then on the flip side of that, he didn't end up having his critics. The economy eventually stagnated under his rule, particularly mainly in the terms of agriculture. And he, double si he doubled the size of the state bureaucracy, placing a further strain on the national economy. And I think that kind of comes from a lot of the programs that he was uh, trying to introduce. Is basically the government was paying for those. And so they needed more bureaucracy to run those uh, different programs and whatnot. And with more handouts and more people working, obviously, it just uh, creates a strain on the economy. And they also said that he had autocratic tendencies and cracked down on opposition from the left or the right if it suited him. So kind of depending on how he felt, he didn't attack only one group. He'd, he'd go after both of them if they uh, made him angry enough. And during his time in exile, his promises to the liberals and the conservatives created hopes for his return that he couldn't deliver on. So I think uh, while he was in exile, he was still communicating with people back home saying the things that he would do if he was brought back. But once he did come back, he wasn't able to deliver on those promises. And so that caused him to have a lot of critics as well. But that's kind of all I have on this guy. Uh, this one ran a little bit longer than I had expected. Um, he definitely was kind of a interesting and um, an interesting person that we talked about. And I really cut this one down too. Uh, there's a lot more information on this guy than I actually thought was uh, real relevant to cover here. So anyhow, uh, go ahead and follow us on the p-town or podcast from p-town on facebook or shoot me a message on p-town podcast on instagram or you can shoot me a message on p-town podcast 74 at gmail.com hope you guys have a good rest this week and we'll see you on the next one thanks a lot